YouTube that are checking in for our Bible Institute today. And uh, good to have you on with us. Now, we are in Hebrew, we're in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> as you know. This year, we're starting our, our, we started the Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, and Hebrews was the first book that we started. And uh, then we'll, we'll move from there. And, you know, I want to take my time with these books because uh, they're really crucial in, uh, in putting your Bible together. So we want to make sure that, you know, you get everything that you need. If there's something in these books that, that you don't understand, and maybe you, it, it doesn't come up like today, but as you begin to work it through your Bible, uh, please bring them uh, Thursday night and get them to me or ask them. And, uh, you know, and we will, you know, we'll help you however we can to uh, do that. So, uh, because it's very important that you get these books down and you really just, you know, gravitate to it. So, you know, that's what I want to help you for it. Now, I told you, Hebrews chapter 11 has been called God's Hall of Fame. And the reason why it's called that is simply because it's so uh, filled with uh, uh, the great men and women of the Bible who, you know, did did great things, and God really uh, gives them uh, a honorable mention here. And there's a lot of things that, you know, we can learn from it. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, I think Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the richest uh, places anywhere in the Bible, uh, simply because of the fact of what it it gives us about these people that we can apply to themselves. And you remember the first time we were together, we talked about uh, how verses 1 and 2 really talk about the aspect of faith based on, uh, and really gives us insight into atomic structure, how that, you know, God is the author of all of that, that holds things together by things that you can't see, the atoms. And then, of course, the last time we talked about, um, in the first part of this book, four main uh, characters that, um, that occupy the first part of this book. And each one of them in their life gives us a, a better understanding of certain aspects of our own, our own Christian life. And we talked about, you know, Abel in verse 4, and uh, we looked at that, and I told you that when it come to Abel, you know, what that says to you and me, understanding what he did and his relationship with God, that he, he gave the very best of what he had and uh, in a sacrifice. And that's a great principle for, for any Christian, you know, that we ought to look to. And that is the fact that we, are, we give the best of, of what we have uh, in sacrifice. And then the second aspect of it was verses 5 and 6, and that was Enoch. And there again, when you look at Enoch's life, you know, it talks about Enoch walking with God and, you know, and, and for 300 years. And, you know, we went into all this in great detail. And that's the, you know, that gives to you and me that, and he's such a perfect example of what New Testament Christianity should be uh, from, you know, uh, from Hebrews chapter 11 by, you know, without faith, you can't please God. And so it's a thing where we learn from him that, don't be afraid to uh, to walk with God when nobody else does, and you know. And then we went in and looked at uh, Noah and all that he went through in his life, and we came away making that application to us that uh, don't be afraid to uh, work for God when nobody else will. 
and uh, he lived in a world where nobody believed God, nobody cared for God, but he did a work that God had given him to do, obviously building the ark. And then we looked at Abraham, and, you know, we took away from him uh, the fact that, you know, Abraham was called out by God to go to a place that, that uh, the sojourn where nobody had ever been. And basically, you know, I said, don't be afraid to wander for God. Go wherever God wants you to go uh, because he's got a plan for your life. These four things in the first part of this book <coughs> are really key. They're really important uh, for us in our life. And as so <laughs> each one of these is an incredible study. If you would want to uh, take it a little bit farther on an inspirational side, <clears throat> I would suggest that you get uh, Arthur Pink's book, Gleaning in Genesis. <clears throat> he is probably the best book on the inspirational of these guys. And um, most of the material <clears throat> that I have given you, you know, I got, you know, 40 years ago when I was going through his material. And, uh, but there's a lot of stuff in there that you can, you can definitely use. So, <clears throat> you know, that brings us up to where we're at today. <clears throat> and the second section of this book, um, you know, um, focuses on two, two guys. And uh, you're going to find that you know, the first part of the book, it covers four guys from four different aspects. And then it picks up in verse 8, um, talking about Abraham and the thing you're going to notice about these two guys, that they are the predominant subject material of Hebrews chapter 11. There's more verses given about these two guys in this chapter than everybody else. Everybody else maybe has one or two verses. These guys, it goes on and on and on and on and on uh, about them. And of course, uh, the first one is Abraham again, but from a different aspect. And then the other is Moses. And basically, the, the second part of the book um, really builds around those, uh, those, uh, those two guys and what God is doing. Each one of them represents something special that we want to look at. Now, picking up in verse 8 here, and it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out unto a place uh, which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, and heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, we had talked about this uh, last week, and, you know, I make reference to this all the time, that that is too, that is a, that's proof positive that he wasn't looking forward to the cross. And uh, the promises there, uh, that uh, in verse 9 are the promises that were given him back in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. This is why he's sojourning. This is why he's going out. And uh, so you, you want to remember this. This is the millennial city that he's looking for. And, you know, I've, I've told it many, many, many times. You know, you'll find it in Ezekiel chapter uh, 40 through 48. Uh, you'll find it in Isaiah 54, 11. Uh, you know, it's it's a place where uh, this is what he is, he, is, he is looking for. This is what uh, the Jew was told to look for. 
And the idea that they were looking forward to the cross like we look back to the cross is just simply a bunch of bunk that, you know, somebody put together because they don't know anything about the Bible, so they thought this looked really good. Obviously, if we look back, so duh, they had to look forward. And, of course, this is where I keep telling you over and over and over and over and over again that if you don't get the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven sorted out in your mind and in your Bible, this is where you make these mistakes. But the same guys who make that mistake will tell you that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are one and the same. And, and that's where the, the breakdown comes in. And then it goes on and it says, <clears throat> through faith, also Sarah conceived uh, seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore uh, sprang uh, there even of one and him as good as dead, dead as far as his body is concerned, and dead as far as physically too, because he's 99 years old, and he, you know, so he's as good as dead. Uh, he's not going to live another 20 years. Uh, therefore sprang there even of one, and, he, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky, uh, multitude of the sands of the sea. Now that goes back to what God told him in Genesis early on when he took him out and showed him the star. So you can see here that the promises have nothing to do with spiritual things. It's not the promises that you and I have of salvation or the promises. It's a promise based on the kingdom of heaven, and you need to see that. Um, uh, the sandwiches uh, by the seashore uh, innumerable. Uh, these all died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. Um, for they uh, that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. There it again, see, a country. You want to run that verse back to uh, verse 10, uh, sh clearly showing you that there's nothing about Christ in here. They're looking for a country. They're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And, of course, uh, you know, this is, this is where you're at with it. Um, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country uh, from whence they came out, they may not have the opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, uh, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, <clears throat> here again. Turn over, to, turn over to John chapter 14, or turn back to John chapter 14. Now, we all go to <coughs> funerals together, and sometimes when we don't do the funerals, um, and some other Baptist guy does it or whoever does it, um, we all kind of wink at each other when this is where he goes for his funeral sermon because this is where they all go. And uh, for whatever reason, this is, this is for the neo-evangelical crowd and most Baptists. I cannot tell you the funerals that I've been to that, that this is where they go. And I just say to myself, okay, here we go again. And, uh, and we're all there. We kind of look at each other and snicker a little bit because... You know, we know we're in, we're, we're in the First Baptist Church of Bozo. So let me read it for you. And I want to tie this back to what we got in Hebrew so you can make your connection here. 
He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, <clears throat> this is t commonly used that, that, as you can see, that it would fit into, uh, you know, fit into um, what Christianity would think, you know. But here's the problem, and this is why I, I always, uh, I always um, you know, like to keep this stuff accurate as I can. Uh, look back here. Keep your finger there. Come back to Hebrews again. Uh, look at there where I read that there. Okay, verse 16. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly, <clears throat> wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, you want to take that preparation of that city and bring it back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 has absolutely nothing to do with you and me. <clears throat> Um, for a guy to take this out and try to put it into the church age for a funeral or for whatever, you know, is a thing where um, it, ju it just doesn't work. Uh, it, it's completely taking it out of context. And, you know, and I was going to show you how this thing works. Now, he says, let not your heart be troubled. First of all, <clears throat> you want to ask yourself, who's he talking to? See, this is what you want to do. <clears throat> You want, to, you want to read that, and you want to ask yourself, who's he talking to? And the second thing you want to ask yourself, <clears throat> what is the context of this? And he says, in my, in, in, uh, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, now, obviously, who he's speaking here to is the 12 Jewish apostles. So this is what the dialogue from chapter 12, 13, and all the way up through here uh, He's talking to his 12 apostles, and chapter 14 is just a continuation. He didn't break off from everything he's telling them in 12, 13, and then start talking to the church here. He is speaking when he says, let not your, who is the your? And of course, the your is the 12 apostles, nothing to do with the church. Again, church age is not even in effect yet. Uh, this couldn't be written directly to you. And I got to be honest, it's really hard to take a spiritual inspirational application out of this because there's so much loaded doctrine here to the nation of Israel. Uh, if somebody would ask me, well, okay, Bob, what is the inspirational application? I would simply say the, the inspirational application is the fact that I know that it's not to me. And so I know where to place it because it's hard to pull anything out of here. I mean, hey, if somebody wanted to say, uh, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Uh, you believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay, I'm good with that. We can all do that. That goes across the board, okay? But that's where it stops. Uh, when we get to this point, then we... But here again, you're going to see how so much of the fake, phony Bible that's floating around out there with God's people comes from the misunderstanding of verses like this. And it says, uh, in my Father's house are many mansions... If it were not so, I would have told you. So, right off the bat, every Baptist preacher wants to talk about the fact that, you know, when you get to heaven, you're going to get a mansion. And, uh, of course, um, it's a thing where there is no place in the Bible, anywhere, shape, or form, even remotely in the Bible, 
that ever even remotely suggests that you and me as the body of Christ are going to have a mansion. Uh, it just isn't. I'm reminded of a, of, a, of, a, of a black lady I knew one time years ago, that, and she, uh, she really loved the Bible, and she really believed the Bible, and she believed the King James Bible. And she had a friend, she had a friend that was, uh, uh, had an NIV, and they would go back and forth. <clears throat> and one day she was, she says, uh, your Bible is no good. <clears throat> and the, the other lady said, well, what do you mean? And she took her over to John chapter 14 <clears throat> and said, well, in my Bible, it says that I'm going to get a mansion. She took her over to the NIV and it says that my father's house are many rooms. She says, I get a mansion. You just get a room. Well, that was the end of it because she dumped her Bible because she wanted a mansion too. So you see, that's not exactly good Bible doctrine, but I love it, man. I just love it. And it's a thing where, and now if I'm reading this, if I'm coming through this, uh, I'm okay with verse one, but I already have in the back of my mind that this, who this is written to, time period I'm in, and I'm not in the church age. So I'm already tiptoeing up to this thing, wanting to be careful with it. Now, when I read this, in my father's house. Now, that is my first key there because uh, that house is the uh, whole household of God uh, in one sense, and it is the temple of God in the millennium in another sense. So, None of that applies to me. And, of course, this is not talking about, it couldn't be talking about your body as the temple of God or uh, a house as it is in, uh, I think it's uh, first, Second Corinthians chapter 5 uh, or maybe First Corinthians 3, simply because that, um, you know, there's no New Testament spiritual circumcision going on here. So the house here has to be a literal house. Now, this is how you use what I give you to look at a passage and ferret it out that you get the right context. So the first thing I look at is my father's house. That has nothing to do with Christianity, not a thing. It has to do everything with the nation of Israel. Then it says, are many mansions. Well, I know that can't apply to me because what I get is New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, Revelation chapter 21. And if I understand, this is getting deep now for most people, maybe not you guys, but if I understand Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, I realize that I'm going to have a glorified body. I'm going to take the place of Jesus Christ because he's going to go back into the Godhead. So I am not going to have a whole lot of time to mansion out. <clears throat> I'm not going to be home a lot. <clears throat> I realize what my job and my function is. You see, this is so far out for most preachers and Christians that they're still in the floating in heaven plucking a harp concept. And to them, a mansion with golden paved streets where you walk around and, you know, uh, that's their concept. It's so far from the Bible. But they get that from guys who teach stuff like this the wrong way. I'm not going to have a mansion. I'm going to have a body. And that body is going to be the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to look just like him. I am going to be him. And I'm going to be everything that he is. And yes, I and me and you, we're going to be God. And that's why 
Christ goes back into the Godhead like he came out in Proverbs 8 because there's no more need for him to be the Son of God because we fulfill that. And God needs billions and billions and billions and billions, I don't know how many, of replicas of Jesus Christ for what his plan's going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. So the idea that we're going to be sitting around in a mansion, and I know the next question most Baptists ask is, will we have cable? Uh, You know, I get that. (laughs) And it's a thing where that ain't us. We don't need a mansion because our job is going to be a functional job where we fulfill on a universal, eternal scale what we're doing right now. You know what? And this is why I tell you now, don't get your roots down too deep in this life today. Don't get so satisfied with all that you have. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have nice things. I got nice things. You should have nice things. But those nice things shouldn't take priority in your life. You need to realize that you have a job to do. And just as you're not to be sitting around enjoying everything now and doing God's work, what makes you think it's going to be any different than that when we really get into it? Right now, this is all just a temporary thing. But it's a picture of the eternal thing, and we ought to be doing now on a limited basis by taking Christ to people, which is what we're going to do. We're going to basically do what what Christ did with Adam and Eve in the garden. We're going to be their intermediate to God, and they're going to fellowship with God through us. And uh, that's just the way it's going to work. So when you get into John chapter 14, and you tie it back to... uh, to to, uh, uh, Hebrews where he prepared them a a city. This is what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with you and me, but I'm showing you (coughs) the key words. Okay. Now, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, here's the standard teaching on that. And you hear this all the time. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, the standard idea is that Christ went back to heaven and he's preparing, he's building your mansion right now. How many have heard that? I, that's crap. That's <laughs> not even, that's not even, not even close to what it's talking about. Uh, <laughs> I heard a preacher one time, he says, He's preaching this thing. It's okay. You know what? If that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. But he was talking about the glory of heaven and going home. And he said, you know what? Um, Look what God did in just seven days when he created everything that's beautiful. What kind of mansion do you think he's prepared for you and for me? He's been working on it for 2,000 years. Everybody would go, ooh, yeah, and get grandeurs of, you know, we are going to have cable TV. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, that's not the way they think, you see. And uh, it's it just, it's so bogus. It's so unbiblical. Uh, it leads to so many other problems that, you know, you just can't, you can't, you, you just can't function with that kind of understanding uh, that, you know, he's going to, he's been preparing a place for you in your mansion. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need, if, if, it, if it was true, God doesn't need 2,000 years to make it happen. What is he doing? Calling a galactic construction company to come in? 
I mean, God creates things by his words. If it was true and a rapture took place, we could be getting off the big heavenly bus going into heaven and he could have just made it right there. But it isn't true. He's talking to Israel here. And he's talking about a city that they were looking for whose builders and foundations are of God. He ain't talking to the church. And when he says here, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now turn over to Hosea chapter 5 verse 15. Add a little more scripture to it. Uh, let's see here. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 14, 514. For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. See that thing? I will take away and none shall rescue him. Now, that is talking about, if you want to put this note in your Bible, this is 606 B.C., 587. When he says there, I will, I will be to him a lion and a young lion. I will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. Historically, put this right in here, historically this is 606 B.C. when they go into captivity. Doctrinally, it's the tribulation period. Now watch, next verse, verse 15, I will go and return to my place. Now you know what that place is? That's the second coming of Christ and him going back to Jerusalem. Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face and their affliction, they will seek me early. So the place there, it has nothing to do with for you and for me. Let me show you another one here. Let's look at uh, uh, Jeremiah 33. See what that one says. Oh, yeah. Now, you want to mark all these in your Bible that I'm giving you, and then you want to run them back to John 14 and build you a little foundational thing of truth there so you can lay it out if you get into it at some point. Now, let's pick it up in verse 5, Jeremiah 33, 5. Uh, and this will be the second coming of Christ. So put this little note there by verse 5. They, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but is to, to fill them with dead bodies of men whom I have slain in mine anger and in my fury for all those wickedness I have hid my face from this city. Now that'll be, notice the city there. This is the tribulation period coming into the second coming of Christ. Here it comes. Behold, now we're going to verse six, put a verse, put a little note here. This is the millennium. <clears throat> 
Behold, I will bring it health and cure. I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. That's Israel getting clobbered in the tribulation in five in the second coming and in the millennium in verse six. Okay, stay with me. I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will and uh, uh, and will 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 build them as at the first. This is in going into the millennium still. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity whereby they have sinned against me. Millennium. I will pardon all their iniquities uh, whereby they have sinned and whereby we have transgressed against me. Millennium. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all nations of the earth which shall hear all the good that I do unto them and shall fear and tremble for all goodness, for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. All millennium. Now watch. We want to put millennium, millennium, millennium down along these. All right, verse 10. Here it comes. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place. See it? I want to mark that one. Verse 11. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. There's Christ in the church in the millennium. Now, verse 12, thus saith the Lord of hosts again, in this place, there it is a second time. Verse 13, the cities of the mountains, the cities of the vale, and the cities of the south, and in the land of Benjamin, and in the places about Jerusalem, places, there it is again. So when he talks about this place, he's not talking about anything for you and me. Here's what he's saying. Let me, let me, now that I showed you the verses, let me give you what he's saying here. Let, he's talking to the 12 apostles. Obviously, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Israel. You and me too, but that's where it stops. In my father's house, the nation of Israel, are many mansions, not for you, for the Jew. If it were not so, I would have told you so uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, this is where he goes back to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And he's clearing up a place for the nation of Israel. Now, the goofy Baptist that doesn't know his Bible thinks that God's up there with the galactic construction company making your mansion. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's talking about while he's up in heaven for 2,000 years, He's orchestrating the events down here with the nations to get that land ready, which would be the Zionist movement, Belfort Declaration, the becoming a nation in 1948, and then getting back in the land. He's preparing that place for them while he's gone up in heaven for 2,000 years that when he comes back, that land is ready. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Okay, now here's the next thing that gets to me. I will come again. Second coming of Christ. You say, it's the rapture. Can't be the rapture. It's not even in the church age yet. When I come again, second coming. This is all to Israel about God preparing a place, this land that's going to be a country, that's going to have a city whose foundation and builder is God. 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may also. Well, if there ever was any proof positive anywhere on the planet that this couldn't be to you and me, it's that verse. Because that verse says that he's coming back, uh, he's coming back uh, that where I am you may be also. Are you kidding me? It can't be the church. I'm part of his body. I'm not separated from him. Wherever he is, I am. I am him. He is me. So see, this is what happens in the Laodicean mindset of Christianity that has permeated Christianity now for almost 100 years. It's turned out generation after generation after generation of preachers, but not only preachers, also also Christians who simply do not have any clue about how to put their Bibles together. And what's even more tragic, they don't want to know. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. And I, but, you know, but we'll stay with the concept. So this is what you have here. And I want you to get that down. We, we made references to it. I don't know that I've ever went through it and laid it out the way I just did. But it's a thing where you need to get that in there. And this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying in verse 16, back to Hebrews 11 now, but now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath a prepared for them a city. That verse means whole new spotlight on it now, doesn't it? Running it back and seeing all the references I gave you back there, this has nothing to do with God preparing your mansion. I mean, that is just typical Baptist bushwater. It has nothing to do with anything in the Bible. And I just tell you right now, you, you, you know what? I know we're not supposed to judge anybody, but the Bible says if you're spiritual, you're to judge all things. You don't have to judge the person. You can judge the things that they say. And I'm telling you right now, when you hear a guy get up and use that or try to make that into the church, you're got you with somebody that has no clue about their Bible. And um, if he's messed up there, he's messed up with the whole thing. So, you know, that's what you got. And that's where you're at with that one. So, you know, that's so important to see that uh, because, again, and it all comes down to the the kingdom of God and the the kingdom of heaven. So everything fits right into that and and goes along with that. So he says now that... uh, uh, be not, uh, now they desire a better country, uh, that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, uh, for he hath prepared a, uh, for them a city. And then he goes on and he says, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac that he, uh, that he had received the promises offered up of his only begotten son. Now this brings up another question, and this this was a question that came in on a website for Bible study. So it's here. So I'm going to deal with it now. And then Thursday night, I'll just refer it back to here. And uh, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac that he should have received the promise offered up uh, in his begotten son. And what you have here uh, is um, come back to James chapter one. And here's the so-called question that people get get hung up on.
Now, keep your finger there and come back to Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to get three passages here. Look at 22.1. It says, and it came to pass, this is the same story, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham uh, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Now, the problem you have here is in James chapter 1, Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Let no man say when he is tempted. I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. So one place says that God did tempt Abraham. And the other place says that God uh, tempted him. So now you have a problem here, and the other place says that, uh, you know, God doesn't tempt any man. So now, this comes up to an obvious question that people have, and and it's a good question. And the answer to that is, first of all, look at, stay in James here, look at at verse 13. And this is why you have to read everything. Pay attention to the words. And it says this, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, the question, the, the, the key here is that God doesn't tempt any man with evil. See, that's the thing you want to see. Now, the second thing you want to see is found back here in Hebrews chapter 11. And it says, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried then there's, there's two kinds of temptation in the Bible. God does not tempt any man with evil, but God will try a man's faith. So what you have is that in Genesis, it says God did tempt Abraham, but then he defines that in Hebrews chapter 11 by being tried. So God will try a man's faith but he will not tempt a man with evil. And those are, that's a simple little thing, but that's, uh, that's how you, 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 you get into places like that and you realize that there's the two kinds of, tempt, two, uh, two kinds of temptation. Uh, one is a tempted with evil, which God doesn't do. The other one is a trying of your faith, which God will do. But he'll never tempt you with evil. So it's, it's understanding, there again, how the Bible itself defined that for you. Genesis, God did tempt Abraham. But in Hebrews chapter 11, he talked about his, it was the trying of his faith. And that is the key that you want to follow by watching how the Bible interprets itself. So when you get into James and you read verse 13, you don't just go off the deep end and say, well, you got to read it because he says that God doesn't tempt any man with evil. But God will try your faith, which is the temptation of, uh, of your faith, not of your character or your will. So you want to, you want to, that's a, that's a key thing that, you know, that people will ask you a lot. 
And when you get in teaching people the Bible, you know, and you get into a, you know, the next level, couple levels up, you know, they're going to, they're going to be, when you start getting them to read the Bible, they're going to start seeing things like that. And then they're going to ask them. And again, you need to, you need to have that in your Bible. You need to go back and I, here's what I would do. I would, I would make my base text where I'm going to put my information in James chapter one. And I would circle that verse or however you do it, and I'd put it right there. And I'd put that there's two kinds of temptations. One is tempted with sin, which God will not do. Use that verse there. The other one is a temptation of the trying of your faith, which God will do. Then I'd go back and put Genesis 22 in, and then I'd come back and put Hebrews 11 in. Then I would go to Hebrews chapter 11, put the information I need to know there that if I'm going to lay this out, I need to go back to James 1. Put it also there, a reference to Genesis 22.1, and then go back to Genesis 22.1 and run that reference to that reference to that reference. So wherever you go, you have a chain that you can follow, a rope that will pull you out of whatever hole biblically you get in. So that's, that, that's what you want to do. And, uh, you know, it's things like that. Uh, in verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Uh, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, the promises there, uh, again, are the promises that God gave him about uh, uh, all the way back in uh, uh, Genesis 22 and 19 about God going to give him a son. And those were the promises. And now it says in verse 18, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And the seed there, again, is the nation of Israel, their seed as a nation. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, that's, that's an interesting verse. <clears throat> because the first thing I see there would be the word figure. And so, when Isaac is... When Isaac is taken by Abraham, uh, and again, this is Genesis chapter 22, and this is a picture of the crucifixion. They are, they, I promise you that when he took his, his son Isaac and was going to offer him as a sacrifice, he's in the land of Moriah. He, I, I just write it down. He is on the exact same spot. He is in an inch to the left or an inch to the right where that cross was when Christ is going to be crucified in the future. He's right on the same spot. And from that, we find that Isaac is a picture of Christ and just in the crucifixion. Abraham was a type of God the Father. He's the greatest type in the Bible. He's such a great type that the Jews call him Father Abraham. And he is a type of God the Father. He's the greatest type of God the Father in the Bible. Joseph is the greatest type of God the Son in the Bible. And Daniel is the greatest type of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. So when you study it out, that from that aspect, Abraham is called uh, the father of the nation of Israel, as God is to Israel. Then you have Joseph. He's in, the, he's in Egypt, and he gets elevated by Pharaoh to the second position in the kingdom. God the Father, God the Son. Then you have Daniel, and he is a type of the Holy Spirit of God, and he gets promoted to the third position in the kingdom. God the Father, God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit, third position. So you see that how this all kind of works down here for you. 
And so Isaac is Isaac is a the, the Isaac on the cross is a picture. He's on the exact same spot where Christ is going to be crucified. He carries the wood on his back for the sacrifice, picture of Christ carrying the cross. One of the greatest passages and verse sayings in that passage back there in Genesis 22 is when they get to that spot, spot, Isaac says, Father, here is the fire, here is the, here is the wood, uh, here is the altar. He says, well, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's answer to him is a classic. And it really puts the whole story into the figure here when he says to Isaac, he says, God himself shall give us the sacrifice. And of course, that's leaping way out of the story into the crucifixion that God himself will, will provide a lamb is what he says. God himself will provide a lamb. And, uh, and key word, he could have said God will provide a lamb, but he said God himself will provide a lamb. And then you look over and there's a ram caught in a thicket. And Abraham takes that ram and makes the sacrifice of that instead of his son. And, uh, you know, and it says it's a figure. Now that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that shows you that God uses types. Types are a figure. And uh, they, they help. it's called a figure because when you read it and you understand that it's a figure... Duh, it helps you, duh, figure it out. And so it's the typology and the pictures and the figures that you have throughout the Bible. But there it particularly tells you about that one, which obviously is key to uh, Abraham. Uh, and, and, and from there. And then he says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning the things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both of his sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave the commandment concerning his bones. Now, the commandment is that he doesn't want to be left in Egypt. He wants to go out because Egypt's a type of the world. And uh, so, you know, that's how that figures. Now, our first major character in the second part of the book, as we understand it now, is um, Abraham. And Abraham will now be a picture for you and for me in this great chapter 11. Abraham will be a picture for you and me of how um, we have a, our walk with God, our relationship with God. There's no better example anywhere in the Bible that I know of that shows a complete picture of you and me and our salvation and our journey to get to the place where we're called a friend of God. And Abraham is one of the two men in the Bible that calls God friend. And it's a picture for you and for me uh, of the reality of what happens when you and I get saved. The reality of what we, we face. The reality of what we, we deal with. The reality of what, you know, we go through. And many times, because we struggle with things, that we defeat ourselves. And yet, the king that will keep you on track and give you encouragement is to study a life of a man named Abraham from the time God called him out, picture of the time God called you out, 
up through everything that he struggled, a man who starts out who can't trust God for everything, anything, and then a man in by chapter 22 and beyond trusts God for everything and earns the incredible title as the friend of God. And uh, so, you know, he gave us a great study in these four guys' lives we saw last week. Don't be afraid to give God the very best. Don't be afraid to walk with God when nobody else does. Don't begin to work with God when everybody else will. And don't be able to wander with God. Then he picks up Abraham and he shows us by a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy description of his life and by faith what he does. It gives us everything that we need to know that that is an incredible picture for you and for me to study his life and understand that the things that he went through in the Christian life and his life will be the same things that you go through in your Christian life. And many times we think we're a terrible person because we struggle with this, terrible person because <coughs> we fail here, a terrible person because we, we struggle with this. When you read the life of Abraham, you realize that he went through it too. Doesn't mean you stay there. He didn't. He went from a guy, and I say it again, he went from a guy who couldn't trust God for anything to a guy who could trust God for everything. And that's the picture that you have. And then notice here that we start to get into uh, verse 20. We start to get back to the guys who are major guys in the Bible. But there's very little said about them here. They're in God's Hall of Fame, but it's clear and I say this all the time, you want to always look for the things in the Bible that God emphasizes. And what you, the rule that you follow is don't emphasize something more in the Bible than God does. But don't miss when God puts something out there and emphasizes it, it's for a reason. And there's a reason why he picked these four guys first. We studied it last time and set them apart. And now there's a reason why he, he goes to great length with Abraham. And now you can probably understand a little better. Then he talks about by faith Jacob when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of his parting of the children of Israel. Nothing about all that Joseph went through, see, because he wants to put the emphasis on these two guys now. But he's got to cover the history of it so we don't get a lot on these guys because he wants, doesn't want to pull off from these two guys that he wants us to look at. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. And then verse 23. Now, here's our second guy. By faith, Moses. When he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Through faith, uh, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest it should be destroyed, the firstborn should touch them. By faith, uh, he, they passed through the Red Sea as dry land, uh, which the Egyptians, as saying to do, were drowned. And then uh, he jumps, verse 30, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to Joshua, on the walls of Jericho fell down. But from verse uh, 23 to verse 29, now we have a detailed description of Moses. Now here's what you got. 
where Abraham will be a representation and a picture and a model of our spiritual growth from the point we get saved to get to the point that we're called God's friend in a personal relationship, you'll want to study Abraham. Moses is going to be a picture of our ministry with God. And I want you to notice that both of these men wind up being God's friend. They're the only two men in the Bible. And that's why God picked them to illustrate these two things in the book of Hebrews when he didn't pick anybody else. And these other guys in here are great guys. But these are the only two men in the Bible that are called directly God's friend. And it's showing you and me that if you want to understand your Christian life, then you devote a lot of time to studying the life of Abraham, how he got to be God's friend. And if you want a successful ministry based on doing ministry the right way and the opposition you're going to face and the things you're going to have to deal with and the things that are going to have to come up, then you want Moses. Moses will be a picture of my ministry with God as his friend. I mean, that is no accident. So when you go back and you look at it, you see that it starts in verse 23. When he was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw that uh, uh, he was a proper child and were not afraid of the commandment of the king. Now, that obviously... Speaks. If we're going to put this thing in a, an inspirational, that shows you right there how important uh, to your kids you are as parents. And, um, you know, I know that we're not under, under Pharaoh and we don't have to hide our children in little baskets in, a, in, in the bulrushes. I get that. But you understand what they're saying here. Back then, Egypt, the type of the world, wanted to destroy all of the seed of Christ. And the world today wants to take your child, if you're saved, and destroy the seed of Christ. You have to, you have to protect your child. Many times in the ministry, you have to protect the child from the world. And sometimes you have to protect the child from the parents. But it's a thing where... Um, you know, it's a thing where you know, that is a great verse that and it, it, it talked about it being, being a proper child. Now, obviously, that simply means that he's a good-looking little baby. But it also carries with it the fact that uh, he was going to be something great for God, which we, which we know he was. And, uh, and, I, and I like it because it says that they saw in him, notice it says, for he was three months of his because they saw he was a proper child. They saw something in their child that made them not be afraid of commandment of the king or the world. Boy, that is a powerful verse. That is a powerful verse for every young couple that's going to have kids or having kids or everybody who's got parents, everybody who has got kids. And uh, it's a thing where it, it, it shows us that that's where it starts. And uh, they, uh, they saw he was a proper child. And, of course, they saw in him what God was going to do. And you know what? You don't have the details of all that. You know, you don't have, uh, you don't have everything that God gave them or told them. All you know is that they saw something in him, and they, it made them not be afraid of what the world said they had to do with their child. Incredible. And then, of course, 
You know how the story goes. If you want to take it on from there, she hit him in the bulrushes, made a little boat for him, uh, put him in the bulrushes, and then stood off to the side to make sure the alligators didn't eat him. Pharaoh's daughter comes down, finds it, has compassion because he's, he's crying. She knows he's a Hebrew because uh, he's got that. And so she takes him into Pharaoh's palace to raise him, and she says, you know what? I really wanted a baby, and I don't have to go through the pain of having a child. I'll just take this one. But you know what? I'm busy all day long. Uh, I think I'll call me somebody uh, that knows how to deal with babies. And you know what? When she went to the yellow pages, God drove her finger right down to Moses' mother. See how God worked that? And then she gets a phone call. Can you come and take care of your own child? This is not what's said, but this is what's happening. Can you come and take care of your own child? He's in the protection now of the king's palace under the king's pharaoh's daughter. And uh, he'll have everything he wants and we'll pay for everything. And we're going to pay you to watch him. That's the blessings of God in any situation that you allow God to do. But it goes back to the parents seeing in their child what they saw and not being afraid of the world and the commandment of the king based on the principles of the word of God that they had. I don't even know how to tell you about that. That's just, uh, it stops where it starts, man. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, ah, now he's growing up. By faith, Moses, when he come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know why? Because he was a proper child. You know why? Because God had his hand in his life all the way from the parents. It wasn't the fact that the parents did what they did because they were really good parents. It was because the parents trusted in God and God used the parents to get Moses exactly where God wanted Moses to be. And God wants to use parents today to get your children right where God wants them to be. I don't know what to tell you. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He understood who he was. Choosing. Oh, boy. I love this one. Life is about choices, isn't it? Choosing. Choosing to hang out with this clown over here versus waiting for God to bring you the right guy. Choosing to get hooked up with this gal who's worthless instead of waiting for God to be uh, choosing. Life is all about our choosing. And Moses had to choose just like you and I have to choose, like your kids have to choose. And it's a thing where you know, uh, I, I've seen parents make just about every mistake that they could make. And, you know, I try to tell them sometimes, you know, don't let your kid do this. But, oh, no, no, you know more about it than I do. And then when it all winds up backfiring in your face, you know what? You, they make the wrong choice. I've never, said a, I've, never, I've never met a kid who made the wrong choice that first the wrong choice was made by their parents. And it's, a, it's almost like bad choices are hereditary, like your high cholesterol. It's a thing where, you know, it, it, every bad choice a kid makes will go back to the bad choice the parents make. And, you know, his choosing here is based on the choices his parents made. And now he's come to the point where, and, and let's face it, I mean, let's put this into a... a Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie format here for a minute. 
He had everything in Egypt. I mean, he didn't lack anything. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter for all practical purposes. He was raised in luxury. You know, he wasn't down there in a, as a slave. He was, he was, he was raised with, with everything that you could want. He had servants. He had good food. He had good clothes. He had a good education. Uh, it's a thing where he had everything that he could want. And, of course, the fact that uh, it's a picture of, of, of how you train your child because the world's going to offer them everything that was offered to Moses. And his right choices or bad choices will be built on your good or bad choices with them early on. Uh, I've seen parents, you know, they, they lose their daughter, they lose their son, they lose the whatever, uh, their kids, and they scratch their head and wonder what happened, and they don't even see that they picked them up in a, in, a, in a car and drove them right to the guy or the gal or whoever and dumped them out and said, have at it, and don't even see it. Choices. Life is about choices. And, yes, there's always something you can do, but the longer you wait, the harder it is. So he says, choosing rather to suffer the affliction of, of the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, I got to stop and tell you this. That's some insight there. He saw, boy, what a, what a guy this must have been. He saw what was going to come his way if he declared himself not the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but in a Hebrew, he knew what was going to, the affliction that was going to come his way. And yet he looked at all of the grandeur, all of the clothes, all of the sandals, all of the food, all of everything he could have had. But his spiritual insight is that all of that, that we look at and we say, wow, he looked at and said, that's just, pleasure of sin for a season. That's some insight. Now, that's how a Christian had to look at the world instead of what we're going through. I mean, you know, the afflictions. You, we had to choose to serve God and take the affliction instead of looking at what's all around us and seeing it as wonderful when in actuality it's just the pleasures of sin for a season. And, uh, you know, it all comes down to your, 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 your choosing process how you choose, what you choose, how you, how you do what you do and choose what you choose. So he says, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And then he says it a different way in the next verse. Esteeming the reproach of Christ. Now, now, that's a wild verse. Christ wasn't even in this story back here. You see how he'll take an Old Testament figure, story, and weave Christ in it, that if you don't see it, man, how did Christ get into this? Christ wasn't back in that story, any way, shape, or form. But now, you see, we're getting a new perspective on it from the, on the other side of the cross. Now we're getting some insight into these guys because Moses is a picture of when you choose to serve God, you're going to suffer affliction. 
when you choose to serve God, you're going to pay the price for it. And most of God's people come to that same crossroads in their life where they have to choose, and they look at the, they look at the pleasure of sin for a season as the great advantages of, of life, and they take it because they don't want to, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to take and choose the affliction. Now look at the next verse. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Now, now we get, now we start cracking down, get a little closer to this thing. Where up there, verse 25, it was choosing rather to suffer affliction. Now we know what the suffering of that affliction is for you and me. You know what it is? Esteeming, taking the reproach of Christ what you and I will put up with and have to deal with because that's what Christ had to do. He bore your reproach on the cross, didn't he? You know what he wants now? He wants you to bear his reproach now. Isn't it amazing how God's people are so willing for him to bear their reproach, but they're not willing to bear his. Welcome to the Laodicean mindset. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. That means he knew at the end result which was going to pay out better. The treasures of Egypt may have been good short term, but it wasn't going to be any good long term. The reproach of Christ and esteeming it and suffering the affliction was tough short term, but boy, was the reward going to pay off long term. And that's a choice we all have to make. That's a choice that we all have to make. That's what I keep before our church all the time. That's what I try to build in people. And that's why, you know, I look at things like the coronavirus and, you know, and all that it does. And, and, and you know, most of God's people, they, they, and I'm not saying you don't respect it. You don't do stupid stuff. But I'm simply saying most of God's people, the moment that hit the door, they can't, it canceled them out from any ministry. Now, we stop ministries. And, you know, and I, but I didn't stop ministries because, you know, that I, I stopped the ministries that was going to put us in, a, in conflict and put us in harm and then let God give us alternative avenues to ministry. And boy, has he ever. We're growing as much as, as, as we ever have with new people coming in. Are you kidding me? Because we decided, we choose, we chose to suffer the affliction of it. We didn't back off. And as far as I'm concerned, and I'll, I'll say this to my dying day. And I know a lot of God's people don't like it, and they, it, it offends them, and they probably get upset about it. But that's because you're a coward. The great coronavirus was the greatest thing that ever hit God's church because it separated the men from the boys. It showed because it, you had to choose, see? You had to choose. It forced you to choose. You know, before that virus hit, we're all good. We're all having fun, you know, playing softball, volleyball, doing all the things we're doing, having an Ironman competition, doing all the great fun things we do. The only choice you had to make was, are you going to go to that or not? And that's a nothing choice. But boy, when the virus came, and now you're confronted with going to church, going out around people, doing this, wearing a mask, doing that, doing that, sitting six feet apart. Now you had to decide, you know, how many times a day you're going to wash your hands. Now you have to decide, you know, who you're going to be around, who you're not going to be around. 
Now you have to decide, you know, am I going to stay home from a large gathering, you know, because I'm not going to go to church. You know what? Now you had to make some real choices. And your choice just showed where you were all the time. I've said it before. A lot of God's people are really good at helping people when they go through tough times, but they're terrible when they have to go through the same tough times. And I'm just telling them. To me, the coronavirus was the greatest thing that ever hit. This church is the greatest thing that ever hit Christianity in the 21st century, 2021st century. You know why? It showed where you're really at in your choosing. You didn't want to choose to suffer the affliction. You didn't want to put up with the inconvenience. You didn't want to take a chance, well, maybe I'll get it, or maybe I don't. You know what? I had him say, well, I don't want to get it because I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get sick. It can't work. You know what? Maybe I'm wrong on this. I thought the Bible had verses that covered all of that. But you see, it comes down to a choice, doesn't it? At the same time, I say, you don't do things that are stupid. You don't go asking for it. You work within the parameters you have to work with, but you just find an alternative way. You know what? In Christianity, no matter how bad it gets, There's lots of options that we may have to follow, but let me tell you one option we'll never follow. We're not going to quit. That's not an option for me. Maybe it is for you. It isn't for me. I'll do it by myself if I have to. I'll do it with my family if I have to. I'll do it with a sprinkling of people that stay behind and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm here, but that's not our church. You see, our church, we prepared 17 years for what hit us last year. And all last year did was just purge. It just showed us what where everybody's choosing was. And you, for the most part, chose to suffer the affliction. You choose to put your life on the line. You choose to, to you know, to bear the reproach. And um, you know what? Hey, God is blessing us for it, and we'll continue to bless us for it, and we'll continue to bless you for it. But that's what it comes down to. Life's about choices. And I love it so much because of the fact that up to this point, the choices we all had to make were inchy-weenchy-beensy little choices that didn't mean anything. Well, I'm tired. I don't think I'll go to Bible study tonight. I get it. That's okay. Well, you know what? I've had a tough week. I think I'm going to sleep in on Saturday and I'll go to Bible study. That's okay. I understand. You need a break. Well, you know what? I don't think I'm going to play softball this year because my, my, my shoulder's really messed up or my knee's really bad. I understand. Probably a good choice for you. Those choices mean nothing compared to the one we had to make a year ago, was it? Huh? The changes in our life? The change of the way things are? The changes in our country? The changes that are falling upon us faster than, than we can count them? And it's a thing where, you know what? God's people, it's always about choosing. It's always about choosing. Joshua said it. Choose this day who you'll serve. See? For me and my house will serve the Lord. And it's all about choosing. Life's about choices. And uh, Moses is the greatest example that you are going to find for ministry because to do the ministry right, he had some things he had to choose over. And so do we. He says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him as invisible. Well, we talked about that before out of Romans chapter 4. 
uh, seeing him who is invisible. That's how we should exist. You see, we see too many things around us that falls into the wrath of the king. But notice it didn't say that he got along by seeing him who's invisible. It says he endured. The Christian life is an endurance. It's enduring things. Somebody asked Mel Sabaka last before he died, he says, let me ask you a question. Are you enjoying your salvation or are you enduring your salvation? And he was so quick with the answer. He says, I'm enjoying my enduring. That's where we're at. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest that he should be destroyed, the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as the dry land, which the Egyptians are saying, uh, old English word meaning decided to go, uh, assayed uh, to do were drowned. So it's a beautiful picture here. And these two men, and we're going to stop here now, but these two men in our study so far, we saw the first four guys, and then we picked up Abraham and saw that these two guys uh, represent two aspects of a life of faith. A life of faith for you walking with God and growing in God, Abraham, and a faith for ministry of doing the work of God once you get to that point, Moses. Two of the greatest studies you'll ever take. So, we'll hold up there.